the Discover Durham podcast, a podcast about the people that make Durham, North Carolina, such an amazing place to visit. I'm your host, Craig Carter, Discover Durham social media strategist. March 12th, 2024 will be the 80th anniversary of one of history's most important basketball games. And it took place right here in Durham, North Carolina. Our guest today is the author of The Secret Game, a book about that basketball game, Scott Ellsworth. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be on Discover Durham. Absolutely. So excited to talk to you about this. So for those who have never heard of it, what is The Secret Game? So The Secret Game was a basketball game that was held in the gymnasium at what's now North Carolina Central University, which was then the North Carolina College for Negroes, in March 1944 on a Sunday morning in a locked gymnasium with no spectators between the varsity for North Carolina College and a wartime basketball team from the Duke University Medical School. And the reason why the gym was locked and nobody knew about it is what they were doing was very, very dangerous. Uh, This was a gross violation of segregation practices throughout the South in those days. And these young men were taking a great risk by playing that game. So how did you first hear about this game and what inspired you to write this book? All right. Well, this is kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it semi-short. So first of all, I had gone to Duke for graduate school. So I was, uh, you know, had lived in Durham and had a good sense of the town. And I love Durham and I've lived there twice now. But I was a, 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 a historian at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I had already written one book about the Tulsa race massacre, and I was looking for a new subject of a book was thinking about what I felt comfortable writing about. I was trained in the history of race relations and Southern history. That was good. But I was also a huge basketball fan. I'd been a basketball fan growing up in Oklahoma as a kid. Then when I came to Durham, I caught the ACC disease, which is the disease one is never cured of and was (laughs) a big fan. And uh, I was thinking about writing about basketball. There was a saying in publishing circles in those days about sports books that the smaller the ball, the better the book. And it was really true. There was a great literature of baseball and tennis and golf, but the books on basketball and football really weren't that good. I was really interested in how the game had changed, particularly if you look before World War II, basketball games were often really slow, sluggish affairs. And in a thriller last night in Raleigh, the Wolfpack nipped the Tar Heels 24 to 12. (laughs) But by the time I'm in high school and coming to Duke, basketball was this, you know, high octane, acrobatic dunking game, all that. So what had changed? And I knew race was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. So I got to work and started reading and reading and reading and uh, looking for a subject. And I realized it was really college basketball was where the change was happening. And I thought maybe I could organize a book around a final four. So I went looking for one. After a few false starts, I finally found my book. I was going to write about the 1957 NCAA final four. The championship game featured Kansas, the most storied college basketball program in America, with the uh, most sought after basketball star of the era, which was Will Chamberlain, playing a segregated still segregated University of North Carolina Tar Heel team. The whole story, the final four, there was a lot of drama, triple overtimes, 
the civil rights movement was happening, television had come in, money's coming in. I thought this is a really great kind of turning point. So it took years and I went to all the schools and interviewed the coaches and players and sort of other legendary figures in the game too. And then I made my big mistake, which was I decided to go to Springfield, Massachusetts, which is home of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Springfield is where Dr. Naismith invented basketball in 1891 to do some research in their library and sort of over like a long weekend. And maybe on a Friday or Saturday after spending hours looking at microfilm, I sort of wandered downstairs at the hall and they were having an induction ceremony and uh, for NBA player or Russian coach, someone else. And I'm just sort of standing at the back of the auditorium. There weren't a lot of people there listening to things. And this elderly African-American gentleman sidles up to me and it, and it's John McClendon. And I'm thinking, John McClendon, yeah, he's famous for something. I know he's in the Hall of Fame, but I couldn't really remember why. And he's just kind of checking me out and asking questions. And I'm talking to him. And then he mentions casually that he had known James Naismith. I'm thinking, you knew the inventor of basketball? I mean, he invented basketball 100 years ago. And then all of a sudden I remembered, oh, of course, John McLennan was one of a handful of students at the University of Kansas in the 19, black students at University of Kansas in the 1930s. And then as I'm thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, I really ought to interview uh, McClendon about as background for part of my Kansas story for the 1957 Final Four. So I we exchange information. I get back home. Uh, I called up the sports editor of the New York Times, Neil Amder, that I'd written a couple stories for. I said, hey, Neil, I want to interview John McClendon. He said, who the hell is John McClendon? And I explain and I say it's going to be a story about how difficult it was for coaches at HBCUs in the segregation era to travel to away games and things like that. He said, that's fine. So I then fly to Cleveland, Ohio, where uh, John McClendon was living, went to his home. We sit down at his kitchen table and I do an interview for my story about basketball coaching in the 1950s. And it's all great. And then at the end, he says, oh, wait a second, I got something to show you. And he goes upstairs to his home office and he comes back and he's got this these sheets of paper stapled together. And at the top, it says racial firsts in basketball I've been involved been involved with by John B. McClendon Jr. And it's an amazing list. Uh, you know, McClendon was the first African-American coach to win a national basketball, college basketball championship, the NAIA in the 1950s when he was at Tennessee State. He was the first African-American assistant Olympic basketball coach for the U.S. Olympic basketball team. He was essentially the first black coach in the NBA. He was also the first African-American coach at a predominantly white institution. This incredible list. But at the top of this paper, it says 1944, first integrated college basketball game in the South, North Carolina College for Negroes versus he'd written Navy medical school team from Duke. And he's talking along and I'm thinking there's no way this happened in 1944. I mean, that's 10 years before the Montgomery bus boycott. That's 20 years before Selma. You know, it's even 30 years before the last team in the ACC got its first black player, which was then University of South Carolina. So I said, hey, coach, you, you and I'm trying to think this is 1954 or 58 or something. 
it couldn't have been then. And he starts talking about the game. And as he's talking about it, it was at exactly at that moment that my book on the 1957 Final Four sunk beneath the waves forever. <laughs> and I was on the trail of this new story. So, and it, you know, and it took a while, but that's that's the genesis of how that happened. Wow, that's interesting to hear that that path. It's so I find it so common when you do creative work like that, where you start with an idea and then just one thing happens after another and you realize in a place that you never started with. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. And and he knew who his players were, of course. Coach did and got in touch with them. It took a while to figure out who the Duke players were, but but once I got one, I said, This is this is a big event. I mean, this is this is four years before Jackie Robinson desegregates the major league baseball. And that's in Brooklyn, New York, you know, four years before that in Durham, North Carolina, young African-American and white men are risking their careers, maybe their lives, you know, to play basketball with each other. And I thought this is a big story and needs to be told. Absolutely. I noticed reading the book kind of, it reminded me kind of like the Marvel movies where there's all these origin stories mm -hmm. and it kind of leads up to all these principal characters coming together. What what uh, inspired you to structure the book in that way? Well, I think uh, there were a couple of reasons. One was there were just so many great stories. And, um, you know, when I wrote this book, there were very, and there still are relatively few books written about basketball, you know, before the 1960s. And it was sort of virgin terrain. So I, you know, I found just a lot of really good information but I was also trying, as, as the book developed, a couple of things happened. I mean, one, I realized this wasn't just going to be about the game. It's also going to be, you know, about how central John McClendon is really to the history of the game. But it was also a book about a forgotten generation of Southerners, mainly African-American, but with some white allies who, you know, in the decades before Rosa Parks refused to get up off her seat in Montgomery off the bus, they were fighting an undeclared war against segregation. And I wanted to I wanted to bring that generation to life because they really paved the way for things. Part of it was that. Another part was, you know, to show change, you really kind of have to show where people are at and to be able to understand them at the moment. Right now, the idea of young blacks and whites playing basketball or, or you know, Hispanics or anyone else, that we wouldn't think twice about that. That's nothing special at all. But that was really a dangerous moment. So I wanted I wanted to put that into context so people could see what was going on. But it was following the stories. I also wanted, there was one thing about basketball. Look, it's our game. It's a North American game invented by a Canadian in Massachusetts. We have been by far, North Americans have, although things are changing, but we've been the dominant feature of the game. This is an American game. And I really wanted to write a book that connected basketball to American culture, both in how it had influenced the culture, but also how the culture had influenced the game as well, too, and wanted to write a bigger book and and uh, to have us celebrate basketball as a part of our heritage. Absolutely. There are a lot of fun appearances from famous historical figures that are kind of adjacent to the story. I noticed uh, Pauli Murray, Harry Truman makes an appearance. What were some of your favorite people that 
made kind of unexpected appearances in researching this book? Well, sure. And there there were a bunch because kind of, you know, the the history of America really before television, there's a, there's just a lot of colorful characters that were around, you know, and, and this was always something I had to work out with my editor. Like, can I steal a paragraph to tell a really good story, but then get back to what we're doing? So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a couple of them just right off the bat were a couple of basketball uh, coaches. One was a gentleman by the name of Ernest Blood, who was a high school coach in Passaic, New Jersey. And he was sort of one of the people who helped to create the fast break. And and there was just nobody like this guy. Uh, he, you know, kept a pet alligator under the kitchen sink in his home. <laughs> uh, it, for his high school teams, they just slaughtered everybody. I mean, they were the best high school, you know, uh, team in, in New Jersey. This is like the 1920s. But he would bring his 400-pound pet black bear to the games <laughs> who would sit on the bench. And then at halftime, Zepp, the bear, would shoot free throws. So, I mean, there were characters like that that once you ran into him, you couldn't you couldn't leave him. You had to put him in. You know, another was a, another, you know, a coach before the war named Frank Keeney, who was uh, up at Boston Guy, but he was up at the University of Rhode Island. And he really built the Rhode Island program into something and he did it you know using the fast break but he he was a, a classical scholar at, at his halftime talks instead of okay we got to go get him he's quoting Shakespeare and Homer and Socrates <laughs> when the team goes to play in New York City he thought it'd be so polluted that he put smudge pots which give off all this horrible smoke and he lit them in the gymnasium so the players would get used to it so there were just so <laughs> many just great kind of sidebars that, you know, just to give the flavor of the times, I just simply couldn't resist. Yeah, I found that to be a, a pretty entertaining part of your book. Looking at the notes section at the end of the book, the amount of research that you did was pretty staggering from interviews to purchasing historical references on eBay to referencing what seemed like 100 books. Uh, what went into researching this book? You know, right now I'm the author of four books. I've been, you know, a historian at the Smithsonian. I, I've taught at Howard University. I, I teach at the University of Michigan now. So even though I write for a general audience, I don't write for other scholars. I do a lot of research and, and I can tell you in all, and this took decades to do, but I've never worked harder to unearth a story than I did with the secret game, simply because there were so few records, there were so few things, and you really had to go and do it. But I, I made a decision early on that, you know, while it is nonfiction, I was going to write it in a novelistic way. I wanted people to be able to get into the lives of these characters and follow them. And the book book opens with a, a North Carolina Central player by the name of Aubrey Stanley. Aubrey had grown up in a Beaufort, North Carolina, a little fishing town on the on on the coast. And he expects that he's going to work as a fisherman too. World War II happens, things change, and he's given this opportunity to go to college. Well, he's never been out of his county before. And so on this fall day in 1942, he gets on a Carolina Trailways bus and makes, you know, what for us is just a few hour drive, but is this epic journey of his lifetime. You know, he's never seen hills before and stuff like that. And I thought, that was such an important moment that I ended up going on eBay. I got Carolina Trailways bus schedules from 1942. I got 
highway maps and I plotted out and I wanted to see what he did on a similar fall day. So it was doing a lot of work like that to really kind of bring things alive and to have people be able to see what does the countryside look like? What did the trees look like? What did things smell like? So it was really an effort to add these types of things that you, you see in some nonfiction, but you see more often in, in novels and to really bring it alive and to have the reader be right there with me. Yeah, I reading it, I did appreciate the novelistic approach that you took to it instead of just it being like a, a history book that you would get from a history class. It made it very entertaining. Right. And also as someone who's done research for writing projects, I appreciate doing hours and hours of research for a sentence or a paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you have to do. And yeah. and it's a lot of stuff. It just doesn't, you know, it's it's all in the background. That's That's how you get there. And it's the little details that make things work. Yeah, I appreciate that. So you were able to interview John McClendon before he passed. Oh, I spent a lot of time with John McClendon. I mean, days and days and days, but also hours and you know, hundreds of hours on the phone. As as one of his former players, as a number of people who knew him said that that he was he was the greatest person they'd ever met in their life, and uh, he was such an interesting person. Uh, you know, he grew up out out west in Kansas, and then in Colorado, kind of came from a rural background. You know, he was not a very good basketball player, didn't even make his junior high school team, but he was absolutely brilliant. He was also fearless. He told me that whenever his team went on the road at, at North Carolina, leaving Durham to go on the road to play a game in Virginia or elsewhere, North Carolina, he said he was always prepared to lose his life, you know, in the sense of death before dishonor. He would try to avoid trouble. But there were certain things that he certainly would not do. He would never go see a movie in downtown Durham because of the Jim Crow seating. African-Americans had to sit in the balcony and whatnot and go in a separate entrance. He wouldn't do that except when the movie Wuthering Heights came in. And he was a great reader. He, he knew uh, Emily Bronte's novel. He loved it and he just couldn't resist. So he snuck in and went and saw, you know, Lawrence Olivier, you know, right there at the Carolina Theater downtown. So, but he was somebody who was very true to his principles. He was deeply religious, deeply Christian. He would always say grace before a meal, even if we were on the road somewhere and at a Wendy's sitting down to have a burger, he he would bow his head, want to bow his head, things like that. But he was, nobody was a stranger. I mean, everybody loved him. Children absolutely adored him. He was just a giant of a man. There's just no question of it. And his impact on basketball is just through the roof. I mean, really the modern fast break, that's John McClendon that created it. Full court pressure defense, we can look to John McClendon for that. And even more importantly, conditioning drills, modern conditioning, that really goes to John McClendon, as well as, of course, things like the four corners. You know, we all know that Dean Smith at Carolina was, you know, praised for the four corners and Dean Smith to his credit, would always credit John McClendon. But McClendon is is kind of the lost great figure in basketball. Researching about him, I gave myself a challenge, which was without using the phrase, the secret game, could I put in a Google search that could get his name to pop up? Oh, how interesting. What happened? I couldn't do it. Yeah, I can. I did greatest coaches, greatest college coaches, innovative coaches, you know, James Naismith, John Wooden, Bob Knight, Pat Summit, 
uh, Dean Smith, Coach K, John Thompson, sure. but could not get his name to pop up. And I'm thinking, you know, he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame twice, which yeah. is, you know, a huge deal. But do you think he'll always kind of be this niche historical figure? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, you know, and, and the reason he's a niche historical figure is, you know, I mean, racism is front and central of that. You know, his his 1943-1944 uh, North Carolina College Eagles team was the highest scoring basketball team in the world at any level. Okay, so most college games around then, their teams would score 40 or 50 points a, a night. He's scoring, the Eagles are scoring 70, 80, 90. They score, they beat St. Augs like 106 to 25 or something like that. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, but the reality is two things. First of all, neither the NCAA or the NIT would allow the African-American schools to play in the tournament. And I think he could, they could have won the tournament. That's, that's how good they were and how far ahead of his time was. The other thing is there's no television then. So unless you go to these then quite small gyms that might seat 400 people in the CIAA, which was quite small in those days, you're not going to see this. So he's fighting against that. So, you know, institutions will, you know, they're going to promote themselves and their current members. So that's the reason. But, you know, there is a John McClendon Foundation that's operating in, in Ohio. It's got top, I mean, you know, some of the great athletic directors from around the country are part of it. There are McClendon scholarships. I think that this is going to build and continue to build. You know, I'm glad that that the secret game has been a conduit through which people are learning about John McClendon, but but he's he's much bigger than the game itself. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, of more attention that it's getting, Adam Silver, who is a Duke grad, uh, gave a speech at the 2023 Duke commencement, and it was all about John McClendon and his impact. And the Duke basketball team recently wore warm-up shirts referencing it. Uh, why do you think this story has a new life all of a sudden? Well, I mean, and those are some of the great proud moments that I've had as a writer. I mean, I saw the Duke-Virginia Tech game, you know, the, the other day with This Game is No Secret. And that's through a group called Eracism who's doing wonderful work with that. I'd also learned from a, a former NBA employee that not only uh, allegedly is The Secret Game one of John, uh, Adam Silver's favorite books, but apparently he makes all of his employees read the book as well, too. That's awesome. So I, I'm thrilled with that. You know, it's it's just trying to break through and to get the story. I mean, there's continued interest in, in Hollywood in the story. We'll see what becomes of that. But I think it's it's just getting people to see the story. I think it's also, it's an era we don't think a lot about necessarily. And uh, the story of black college basketball has been suppressed and ignored for a long time. And this is a story that where half of it is that kind of basketball. The other half is very much more white mainstream basketball that people are used to. But it's a funny combination. It's World War II. It's, you know, we don't have the normal kind of play that was going on. In 1944, the Converse basketball yearbook said that the best college basketball team in the United States was the Great Lakes Naval Station team out of Chicago. Then they had a player by the name of John Wooden who had played <laughs> at Purdue. They were a tremendous team, but this is an era where things don't look like they normally do, and people have got to get their hands around that as well. Yeah, 
Uh, you've mentioned World War II several times. When did you start to figure out that this story was about a lot more than one singular basketball game? You know, I think it just sort of kind of slowly started to dawn on me as I'm writing the, you know, researching the story of the game and the players and whatnot. And then, you know, you learn about certain other figures. I mean, I knew about the history of civil rights as well, too. But, for example, there was this incredible German-Jewish refugee couple, the Manassees, and they were saved by James Shepard, who, like other HBCU presidents, uh, gave jobs to these people and allowed them to get visas to come out. And the Manassees come to Durham. They they live in a walk-up, you know, apartment right off of the Duke's East Campus, but he works at North Carolina College. They're horrified at the, you know, whites only, no colored allowed signs, which reminds them back in Germany of Juden forbidden, no Jews allowed, all of that stuff. And so what the Manassees do is they start to hold um, meetings like teas, social events at their houses, where they invite white professors from UNC and Duke black professors from North Carolina College, you know, just to get together and talk. And uh, they are breaking all these rules. And this is ahead of time. That goes on until the Durham clan finds out about them and shows up at their house and says they'll they'll kill their two kids and burn down the their apartment if they try it again. And th- these are people, these are the Manassees are people that have an influence on the North Carolina College players. So I'm realizing there's all this other stuff going on that this game is a part of. And there's this lost generation of pioneers who are really attacking segregation in Durham. You know, and Durham is really key with this. You know, we all think about Rosa Parks and Montgomery and refusing to get down off her seat. Well, 11 years before that, there was a 16-year-old Durham High School sophomore named Dory Lyons who refused to get off of her seat in a segregated Durham bus. She was, you know, arrested, beat up by Durham police officers, stuff like that. So, you know, these events aren't breaking through quite yet, but they're happening here. And I think Durham is a hugely unsung center of civil rights activity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, the more I learn about Durham's history, it's pretty remarkable how much of an impact and how much incredible history has happened in such a small kind of Southern town. Absolutely. Yeah. Of all the people you interviewed, who were some of your favorites? Well, boy, there were just a lot of them. Certainly uh, Jack Burgess, who was this uh, cowboy from Montana who came to Durham and was just outraged at segregation. He had grown up next door to an Indian reservation in Montana, you know, played growing up with, playing ball with a number of Native American kids. And so he had a different outlook on things. I will tell you that hands down, my favorite interviews were with Ed and Pee Wee Boyd. Uh, I was hoping you'd in, say Pee Wee. In Durham. <laughs> and uh, Pee Wee was the, uh, uh, he was the manager for the North Carolina Central team and had a very long history in Durham, working a career in recreation and whatnot, and his his wife Ruth, who was from a very prominent family in Haiti, and they were just the most stunning interviews. Some of the most I mean, I've done the thousands of interviews at this point. Some of the most stunning interviews I've ever done in my life, it, because they they didn't pull any punches. They were very open and honest about people about their foibles and 
you know, their faults as well as their wonderful things. The stories that they told just had me just, you know, side splitting with laughter. <laughs> and uh, they just brought so much color and life to the book that I, I'm just thankful for them forever. But they, you know, look for Pee Wee and Roof if you pick up a copy of the book, because they have just wonderful stories to tell. Yeah, Pee Wee definitely seemed like a larger than life character, for sure. He was, believe me, he was totally larger than life. Yeah. So getting to the game itself, recreating something that was not televised, uh, recreating it through oral history, basically. What went into that? Well, a lot of work and just and a lot of common sense, too. You had to just kind of figure out how certain things would happen and where they would go, you know, and to try to, you know, I, I worked on this for many years and you know, as I got to know the Duke players, Dave Hubble, Jack Burgess, think this is normal. But as they start thinking about things, then they'll remember other things. So other memories will come up and they'll they'll tell me about them, give me a call or whatnot. And, and you put things together and try to figure out, you know, exactly how things works. And you would just try to grab those nuggets and go from there. But, you know, what happened, too, was even though this game was secret and there's a story about how it was, I'm not going to spoil it for readers, but <laughs> you know, how the game was discovered, how the Durham draft board found out about it and how certain things happened afterwards. But, you know, I also got lucky and ran into how the ripples of this happened. And one incredible ripple is that summer of 1944, just, you know, a, a, a weeks after the game, word of the game had kind of spread amongst the college basketball community in North Carolina, and it made it to basketball players at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, white players who had heard there's this, quote, new kind of basketball being played at this small African-American college. And they didn't really know where North Carolina Central was, but they drove over to Durham and found it and started to get in playing pickup games with the black players and realizing, oh, my God, these guys are so much more advanced than we are. They're doing things like that. And then those players then, as the war ends and they go back home and they become coaches and players, they start to take McClendon's ideas in different places. So a lot of it is just trying to make those connections between what's going on. I also had a, a, a longtime civil rights activist and others in Haiti talk to me about how they knew the game, that African-Americans were in the, in the game itself were finally having a level playing field against whites. The fact that they won the game and did so well was an inspiration. But it's it's also part of this process of people starting to liberate themselves. One activist told me we had to have a civil rights movement in our minds before we could have one in the streets. So the game itself is part of this larger movement of people pushing, 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 trying to make changes in Southern society trying to envision a new different kind of life in Durham and North Carolina and the United States. So it's trying to capture those and to put that into the story as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's it's so interesting to hear how certain events kind of have that uh, butterfly effect or those ripples. Before we wrap up, is, is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention? Not too much, uh, just aside from the fact that, uh, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I absolutely love Durham. It is an amazing place. I must tell you that when I came to Durham, I arrived in August of 1976 from Oregon, 
as a brand new graduate student in the oral history program at Duke, Durham was a an absolute, completely world away from what it is today. I mean, you know, when I go to Durham today, I am just blown away by all the changes that are going on and things like that. Although I have to tell you that, you know, I'll still go to Bullock's every time I get there. <laughs> I get, you know, the Brunswick stew and the barbecue or the yep. vegetable plate or, you know, whatever it is. So there's uh, Durham is an amazing place. The people of Durham are absolutely tremendous. Yeah, Haytai is an absolute jewel. Uh, it's a community that needs to be celebrated in its history, should be celebrated, you know, across the city. But I love coming home to Durham. You know, I'm just so glad that you you all have got this podcast going. Well, we really appreciate it. If you're ever in town, let me know. I'd be happy to give you some good recommendations. I'm sure there's a lot of new restaurants and other things to uh, to check out since the last time you were here. That sounds great. That sounds super. Wonderful. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book. Thank you so much for writing it and sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. If you haven't read it, the book's called The Secret Game, and it's available at a bookseller near you or from Amazon and whatnot. But anyway, I if you're from Durham, I think you'll find uh, there's going to be some stuff of interest in it. Oh, absolutely. And I think pretty much every local bookstore in Durham has a North Carolina section and even a Durham uh, book section. So you can definitely find it there. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Craig. Appreciate it. If you're a visitor in town, make sure to stop by our Visitor Info Center at 212 West Main Street for personalized recommendations of things to do. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. To follow us on social media, search for Discover Durham. Thank you to American Underground and EarFluence for hosting us in their podcast studio. And a special thank you to Blackspace and Zone for our music. I'm Craig Carter with Discover Durham. Thank you for listening. Thank you.